After running away from God's mission and finding himself in the belly of a fish, Jonah cried out to God for help. Jonah recognized that he had been driven from God's presence and that his prayers had been answered when the fish saved him from drowning. Jonah praised God for saving him. Well, Familia, we've already read this text this morning, but I want to get right to it. So if you would turn your Bibles to Jonah, we're starting in chapter 1, verse 17. And like Sergio said, if you're connecting with us online, we invite you to also participate in this. So grab your Bibles, and we're going to step into God's Word together. While you're turning there, I want to situate us in the story as we have been found. Like Sergio said, we've been in this series of Jesus and Jonah, and this second chapter that we're about to step into of Jonah... Jonah's story comes in the wake of this runaway prophet of God trying to outrun not just his creator, but the instrument of that creator's mercy, this hurricane on the sea. He's asleep in the bottom of the boat, and this runaway prophet is shaken awake by these panicked sailors trying to figure out what's happening. And to fix the situation, Jonah's uh, solution is his sacrifice. At least that way he can do some good even while he continues to run away from God. The sailors throw him overboard, and the hurricane stops as quickly as it started. And as Jonah sinks into the darkness of the deep, our story exchanges the darkness of the seafloor for the darkness of this miracle fish. And for the rest of our text, it leaves us in that darkness, even as it points us to the light of God. Church, have you ever felt like you are praying from rock bottom, wondering if your prayer is even going to make it out? That's where Jonah is right now praying at the rock bottom of his life. And so as we sink below the waves with Jonah, I want us to step into the story remembering where he's at. So why don't we do like we normally do and stand for the reading of God's word. We're starting in Jonah 1.17. People of God, here is the word of the Lord. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You almost feel the story slowing down as the prophet of God sits in the darkness of the mercy of God, about to have words with his gods. And verse 1, chapter 2, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Closer to death than life, Jonah's praying and he says, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, "I, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again to your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath Barred me in forever. We'll stop there for the moment. This is God's word. You may be seated. In his collection of poetry on the book of Jonah, this American poet named Thomas John Carlyle um, wrote this. He said, I was so obsessed with what was going on inside the whale that I missed seeing the drama inside Jonah. Last week with our family in Christ at our West Chicago campus, I pointed out the irony of the distraction that this fish has become in this story. Too often when we think about the story of Jonah, we struggle because we are so focused on this fish. A fish that one writer actually describes as only having a walk-on part. 
so focused on this creature that we miss the creator at center stage, the God who is at work in Jonah's heart. Look at the text, chapter 1, verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. There's this almost echo of the sailors in the background sacrificing to God and making promises to this God that they just encountered. And and the story pivots to this underwater scene. The sailors sacrifice and make vows to this God who turns off hurricanes like we flip a light switch. And Jonah sinks below the waves. Meanwhile, the God of this runaway prophet has not forgotten Jonah. The God of all creation who sent the storm now sends this huge fish. He sends a rescue party of one, a submarine of escape from death for his rebel prophet who seems to be intent on trying to escape from God. And as we are dragged underwater with Jonah and the waves are swirling and we are swallowed into the belly of the fish, the chaos of the storm, the panic of suffocation are replaced with the quiet of an image bearer sitting with the one whose image he bears. The solitude of a creature with his creator. And in that silence, it it dawns on Jonah that he's not dead. That he's alive and that he shouldn't be. He has been rescued by the mercy of God. The prayer that we're about to enter into in chapter 2 is meant not only as a highlight of God's salvation in the life of this prophet, but it's supposed to become this almost echo throughout the rest of the story. To leave almost an impression on our souls as we travel with Jonah into Nineveh in chapter 3. You see, Jonah realizes as he continues to breathe that each breath is a mercy. And so in that realization, he turns to God in prayer. A prayer that we're going to sit in for the next two weeks where we encounter this, this rebel heart praying to this rebel rescuing God. This week, that's why we stopped at verse 6, we're in the first half of this rebel prayer. And what I want us to see from the beginning of this prayer is just one simple truth. And throughout the sermon, I'll build to this. So if it doesn't make sense now, I just want you to write it in your notebook right at the beginning and we'll get to what makes sense about this. This one simple truth that sin goes deep, but Jesus goes deeper. Sin goes deep, but Jesus goes deeper. You see, there is a depth to the sin that has corrupted our hearts that we sometimes miss in this culture that we live in of of self-esteem and human innovation. A depth to the sin that has so broken our world that we sometimes lose sight of in this society that is so focused on spirituality and what, what seems right to us. A depth to sin that if we ignore it or diminish it leads to this distortion of our understanding of Jesus, why he even came and what he did for us. And if we're not careful... Our misunderstanding of this sin will lead us to a a almost contortion of the gospel of grace, which twists sin and grace into just ideas rather than life or death realities. So the question behind this prayer this morning is, do we really understand the life-changing power of God's grace? the wonder and beauty of the resurrecting grace of God in Christ. It is only when we see that sin goes deep and yet Jesus goes deeper that we can fully embrace the life-altering and radical grace of God in the gospel. And the way that I think the first half of this prayer points us to this simple truth is by showcasing three difference makers in our lives. Three things that made the difference in Jonah's life. You see, a difference maker is defined as, as someone or something that has an impact or an effect. 
that brings about change, that, that, that shakes things up, the kind of person or action that changes an outcome, whether for better or for worse. And the first half of this prayer has these three difference makers for Jonah, the difference that prayer makes, the difference that God makes, and the difference that sin makes. And so that's how we're going to walk through these six verses. That's how we're going to make our way to the truth that sin goes deep, but Jesus goes deeper. And you might be wondering, Eric, this passage has nothing to say about Jesus. I don't know why you're saying that. Well, walk with me and we'll figure it out. The first difference maker is the difference that prayer makes. The situation that Jonah finds himself is bleak. God's waiting room is pretty quiet, even if it is dripping in stomach acid. And Jonah breaks his silence with prayer. It almost feels like things are starting to turn around. Look at the text, 2-1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And if we've been tracking with the story, you and I might say, finally. Finally, Jonah prays. Finally, we see the prophet of God approach the God he claims to worship and prays. After all, the sailors who have just been introduced to this God pray three times in this text. The first time they pray to to their idols. Then they're introduced to this God, and the second time they actually pray uh, to God God, right before they throw Jonah overboard, asking him for, for mercy. And then after they see what the Lord can do, in awe of the God who commands the wind and the waves, they pray a third time. Sailors far from God, brought near despite, as one writer describes it, Jonah's anti-missionary strategy. These sailors pray, and yet the man of God has yet to pray in the story up until this point. That is, until the water has hit his lungs and the panic of drowning has, has hit his nervous system, that's when he prays. And even though it took him this long to pray, still, even at this point, especially at this point, we see that prayers make a difference. That prayer matters. That prayer is God's way not just of changing a situation or a circumstance, but more importantly, of changing people. And it all begins the moment we open our mouth to pray. You see, part of what this story teaches us is that prayer is the beginning of God's mercy to us, even and especially when we are in sin. You see, God rescued Jonah from death, but his work of mercy was not just to save Jonah's lungs from suffocating, but to save Jonah's soul from drowning in his sin. And so it was mercy not just that preserved Jonah's body, but that moved him to pray. This was what you might call a spiritual intervention that Jonah was experiencing. Something miraculous. Something big. Have you ever experienced a spiritual intervention in your life? Now, for some of you, it might have been something, I mean, huge, something miraculous, something God stopped you right in your tracks. But others of you, it might just have been a conversation over lunch with a godly friend. God has actually built something into the fabric of his community, not just in those interactions, but, but these spiritual interventions that actually become rhythms where God intervenes in our life. We are experiencing one right now, gathering with God's people, sitting under his word, even singing together. Remembering the gospel at the table of communion, rejoicing with others as people are being baptized. We are, these are opportunities, spiritual interventions where the Lord uses to draw us back to him. It even happens in the, the, the chance encounter with someone after church in the hallway. God draws us to himself in all of these big and small ways, spiritually intervening in our lives to grab our attention and, and bring us back to him. And so sitting in the belly of God's mercy, Jonah is in the middle of his own spiritual intervention. He realizes that there is no situation too far gone where God will not hear your cry. This is the difference that prayer makes. Even if your prayer is overdue, 
it's never too late. Now, stepping away a little bit from this particular situation of Jonah, I do want to take a minute to talk about prayer. And you'll excuse me if I'm stepping away too far from the text, but the reason I want to bring this up is I want to acknowledge, even as I talk about a building update, that there's a difference that prayer makes within our community. Church, prayer has to become more than just some kind of SOS flare that we send up in the worst of our circumstances. God will hear us even there, but prayer has to be our first response. Instead of following in the footsteps of Jonah, we have to follow in the footsteps of the one that is greater than Jonah. The Jesus who prayed in both desperate and regular circumstances, who built his schedule around prayer, who would rise early to pray, and yes, would also pray as opportunities arose, who prayed, yes, long prayers and short prayers. We learn, we engage, because prayer matters. Prayer makes the difference. TVC, I don't know if you know this, and maybe if this is your first Sunday, you wouldn't have known this, but we are only here because God has responded to us in prayer. What, what, what has happened in the past two years and the instability of this community, we shouldn't be here, and I am under no delusions that I am clever enough, strategic enough, that any of us here are clever enough or strategic enough or smart enough to make TVC work. The reason this works is because we have prayed and the Lord in his grace and mercy has responded to us, has acted on our behalf and kept us together. And so when I say that there is a difference that prayer makes, I want you to recognize and understand that we are living the difference that prayer makes within this community. Do you understand that? I stepped too far from Jonah. Stepping back in. It seems like prayer has made the difference for this runaway prophet. I'll step back out. I forgot one thing. This is family. You guys are okay with me doing this. Well, talking about prayer, one of the things that I want to mention is we are in the plans to helping this community continue to see that reality of prayer. I don't have all the details that I can share with you yet, but I plan to share a way that our community will continue to step into what it means to depend upon the Lord in prayer. Not putting together more programs or finding some more strategies to reach people, but praying to the God who brings people to himself. And so I want to say that to you as I do my little away from Jonah moment so that you know that that's coming so I can prepare you for that because we want to be a community that is defined by prayer. Amen? All right, I'm done. Back to Jonah. If we've been good readers and tracking with the story of Jonah up until this point, we see the, prayer, the, the, the difference that prayer seems to make in his life right now. But even if we do know the end of the story and how whacked out it gets, we might still be a little bit skeptical of Jonah at this point. After all, all we've seen of Jonah up until now has been disobedience. Even in his answer to the sailors, it's not been entirely full of integrity. Every time we think Jonah is taking a turn towards God, it's almost like he takes a little detour path and misses it again. And so the question is, will this prayer really be any different? Well, so I want to walk through this prayer and see if there really is something that's changed in the heart of this disobedient prophet. And what I want us to pay attention to is that in this prayer, Jonah shows a lot more than he tells We'll see that though sin goes deep, Jesus goes deeper, and Jonah, even if he didn't understand what he was doing, points us back to the gospel, the mercy of God in Christ that reaches to rock bottom even when we can't figure out which way is up. The prayer begins in this mouth of this prophet. He's exhausting himself trying to figure out the language to explain what he's experiencing, what God has done for him. And so he finds that language in the realm of death and of chaos. A darkness in which the light of God shone and made all the difference for him. And so this is our second point. 
God who makes the difference maker who is God, God who makes the difference in Jonah's life, and he does that in two ways, by his answer and by his actions. Look at verse 2. Jonah says, he starts praying, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Notice how Jonah describes the situation. In my distress. Right? He, the next line says, deep in the realm of the dead. In the belly of the fish, Jonah poetically describes his situation as being in the belly of death itself. Not just in the jaws of death, where there's kind of a way to get snatched out of the jaws of death, but, but in the process of digestion. His situation was desperate, and all he expected was death. There's no other option for salvation. And yet, even in this desperation, he cries out to God. He asks for help. This is, if you have heard this phrase before, this is last minute foxhole. I I promise if you get me out of this, I'll do whatever you want kind of prayer. He fled from the presence of God in chapter 1. And now here at the beginning, he returns to the presence of God. And God answers. God listens to Jonah. Before seeing how God acts, I want us to stop and see the God who answers prayer even after we have been disobedient. Let's be honest, most of us don't pray until it's the last thing we can do. Until we've exhausted all of our resources and all that is left for us is to pray. That is what Jonah's doing in this moment. But it is the grace of God that, like I said earlier, even when prayer is overdue, it is never too late. He is the God who listens and who answers We may think we've gone too far, but God has shown himself to be the kind of God who loves, loves to hear the humble and the repentant in prayer, no matter how far, how long it's been for you to get there. For Jonah, it took him a a hurricane near drowning and now miraculously sitting inside this fish to bring him to this point of prayer. And it may not be that action-packed in your life. In fact, I probably hope it's not. I don't want you to be sitting in the belly of a fish trying to figure out how you got there in the first place. But don't miss that God is still pursuing you and that the how of God's pursuit is not as important as the fact of God's pursuit. That God pursues us in mercy. We leave it up to him to know just what we need in order to actually be found in him, to be brought back to his presence. But I want you to know that God makes the difference in our lives because he pursues us, because he loves us. He answers even when we think we know best. He pursues us in his mercy, and that makes all of the difference in the world. And apparently, it made the difference in Jonah's life. He cried out for help, and maybe Jonah knew that he didn't deserve it. Or maybe he thought that, okay, I'm part of the people of God, and so I kind of deserve it. I've got access to this God. Whatever the case may be, Jonah's focus shifts in this next verse from from the difference that God makes in his answer to the difference he sees in God's actions. Verse 3, you hurled me into the depths. Into the very heart of the seas, the current swirled about me. All your waves and your breakers, they swept over me. Jonah moves from the way that God answered to the way that God acted to bring him to this point. And you might be saying, okay, Eric, hold on a second. You're going too fast. Sorry, Latino, I'll fix it. But you might also be wondering, okay, I'm a good reader of the Bible. And so I know that the story, God didn't throw him into the water. It was the sailors. What What is he talking about? Well, what Jonah is doing, even though he has been drowning, it's not the lack of oxygen to his brain that has him confused. What he's showing, rather than telling, is a theological view of history. In other words, Jonah looks back on the moment when he is launched overboard and sees behind the sailors the God who is sovereign over everything. Ultimately, it is God who threw Jonah into the water, not just the sailors. 
God was acting in the storm as well as through the sailors. God is sovereign. God is in control. And even as I say that, as I have been doing in some of these sermons, I want to be very clear that the biblical truth that God is sovereign has too often been wielded in hurtful and damaging ways. So even as I point to it, I do want to nuance it and say that too often this this truth about the sovereignty of God has been read backwards like Job's friends where we reason from suffering back to sin. That is not always the case, even if it is the case in Jonah's life. When taken with the whole teaching of Scripture on God's sovereignty, this text does not teach us that all suffering, which can be traced back to God's sovereignty, is a result of sin, is punishment for sin. But it does teach that when we do sin, there will be suffering. We have somehow messed with the design of life, with God's design for life. And that suffering for God's people is actually meant to be corrective, transforming, reconstructive, restorative, meant to bring us back to him. Hebrews says he disciplines those that he loves because he loves us. He wants what's best for us, and what's best is to live in the design of his life. So although all suffering cannot be traced back to sin, all suffering can be traced back to the sovereignty of God, and even though we don't know all the whys, we trust the hand that brought it. To illustrate that, there's this uh, global leader in disability advocacy, this faithful Christian named Joni Erickson Tata, and she's paralyzed from the shoulders down, and she describes the difference that God made in her suffering with this. I know it's a long quote, but bear with me. I tried to cut it down as much as I could. She says, I really don't mind the inconvenience of being paralyzed if my faithfulness to God while in this wheelchair will bring glory to him. When God brings suffering into your life as a Christian, be it mild or drastic, he is forcing you to decide on issues you have been avoiding. He is pressing you to ask yourself some questions. Am I going to continue to try to live in two worlds, obeying Christ and my own sinful desires, or am I going to be like Christ? He provides the suffering, but the choice is yours. God had reasons behind my suffering, and learning some of them has made all the difference in the world. Suffering, even when we don't know why, or maybe when we don't know all the whys, brings us to a crossroads. Will we trust God? Will we reject Him? Will we follow God, or will we follow our own sin? There is, yes, there is suffering that is directly connected to our sin. You lie, you get fired. You, you, you cheat on your spouse, divorce is coming. You, you, you try to run from God, and it leads to drowning. At least that's what happened in Jonah's life. This kind of suffering is always meant to bring us back to God. How do I know that? Why do I think this text is teaching that? Because Jonah is still alive. He's, he's not dead, and that's a big deal, because what he did was treason against the God of the universe. And yet he hasn't been killed. Uh, Jonah has not yet said, your will be done to God. But God has also not yet said to Jonah, okay then, your will be done. There's a phrase that came up when I was studying this that that haunts me from the first chapter of Romans. And it is that God gave them over to their sin. And it echoes over and over in that chapter. In this chapter, it's not yet at that point. God is using the suffering in Jonah's life to bring him back to him. He's not giving him over to his sin. He still wants him. And if you're here now and you're hearing me talk about sin and talk about the gospel, it's because God's not done with you yet. God hasn't forgotten you, even if you are running 100 miles an hour in the other direction. God is faster than you are and God is more loving than you are. However you came into this space, God has not forgotten you. 
And that is a good thing. God has answered and God has acted in Jonah's life. And it is a mercy. And in Christ, God has acted and answered in our lives. But I'm getting ahead of myself. There's something that makes the difference in Jonah's life. This gospel that I'm pointing to. There's, there's something conspicuously that's missing in Jonah's prayer that I want to point out because I can't point to this gospel without pointing this out. If you've noticed, up until this point in the prayer, Jonah has yet to confess his sin. He hasn't made any kind of confession. I did wrong. I shouldn't have run. I, I, I didn't repent on the ship. I haven't done anything like He hasn't done anything like that. And you'll find as we walk through the rest of the prayer that, that Jonah never actually does that. There is no acknowledgement that he's done anything wrong, that his identity, for example, was rooted in his country before it was rooted in his God. There's none of that. There are some words that we might be able to try and twist into some kind of confession and try to kind of read, but Jonah doesn't just tell the truth about his sin. And that's a problem because we need to do what Jonah did not do because that's the difference that prayer should make. It should see the difference that God makes in his answer, in his actions, and his mercy, and should lead us to confession. Because true repentance requires, it necessitates, it demands that we tell the truth about our sin in confession. If we don't, then we have not truly repented. We have not come face to face with our sin. We have not seen it as it really is. We have not encountered the true God and let that encounter change us. We have defined sin for ourselves and diminished its power. We have defined God for ourselves and diminished his love and his holiness. There's no confession in Jonah's prayer, but my question for you, is there confession in yours? Do you confess to God that he is who he says he is, that he sees things correctly, and that yes, indeed, sin is killing you, and that you need a savior? Nothing can take the place of just telling the truth in prayer. There's only two reasons that I can see for Jonah not doing this. Either he's experiencing some kind of memory loss, kind of hit his head on the way down, or he needs some kind of new glasses because his interpretation of the situation that he's coming out of is faulty, is misaligned. He's not seeing reality for what it is. But that really is how sin works. It distorts our perspective. It messes with our minds. The difference sin makes, here is our third point, is that we have a hard time seeing reality. Which means we need someone with perfect vision to show us just how bad it is. And even when we do see it, when we see sin in its true light, the difference that it makes is that we can also also actually see grace in its true light. Beautiful, glorious, more wonderful than we could ever imagine. Despite Jonah not really owning up to his sin, his prayer at least shows rather than tells sin's effects, the difference it makes in our lives. And he shows it to us by describing the distance he feels, sin's distance, and the depths to which it took him, sin's depths. Look at verse 4. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. He acknowledges God's answer recognizes God's actions in a situation, and then he kind of goes below the surface and sees the judgment of God. He interprets his, God's actions in verse 3 as God's judgment in verse 4. The word he uses for banish is actually the same word that is used all the way back in Genesis for Adam and Eve when they were driven out of the garden, banished from the garden. It is the language of judgment. And even though he is the one who ran... He sees in these events that followed these, this judgment of God. He acknowledges that judgment. 
And the way he describes this realization is by seeing the difference sin makes when it creates distance from God. He is banished from God's sight, unable to to be in the temple with his God, forced only to look towards it. He is separated from his God. There's hope there, but there's also a distance that he's communicating. This is our reality as human creatures in this broken world. I know what I'm about to say when we start talking about all this sin is unpopular. When our society believes that humanity's biggest problem is not sin, but, but this lack of self-esteem, this abundance of shame, when, when morality is, is relative and, and good and bad, right and wrong, is, is socially constructed, is defined by individuals and even culture and society at large rather than God. When it translates to this cultural truth and no one can really make you feel guilty about what you're doing because you get to decide what's right and wrong. You get to decide your own parameters. In a society like that, the Bible's claim that we are sinners, that we are guilty of rebellion against God is not just another claim among many, but an almost evil and dangerous claim that threatens to destroy society. So I know that talking about sin and describing the distance that sin creates between us and God, between us and others, is unpopular. And some might even think, again, dangerous. The problem is that what's more dangerous is not talking about sin, but not talking about sin. What's more dangerous is letting the sin that is so intent on killing us continue to plot to kill us in the dark. You see, God shines a light on our sin through his word because he loves us too much to let sin continue to feed on our souls. He he does it out of love as much as he does it out of his holiness. So God cannot let sin stand because of who he is, but he also cannot let sin stand because of who we are. He is holy and we are made in his image, which means that he is just, he has to punish sin, but he is also overwhelmingly loving, meaning he refuses to sit back and let us drown in our own sin. And so even though it's unpopular in this community, we talk about sin because God talks about sin, because to talk about sin is actually loving, because there's a gospel that comes after it, because there's hope that comes after it. Because even at this distance, Jonah speaks about his sin with some kind of hope. He prays and he acknowledges the effects of sin in his life, the distance it had created between him and God. And even though he does not go so far as to connect the effects of sin with the sin itself, he does open our eyes to how bad the problem is. And he does that by admitting his his agony, his, his suffering and being separated from God. We just have to take it one step further and do what Jonah didn't to connect the dots between that agony and our sin, to confess that sin is what is causing our our distance from God if we have not come to God in, in repentance, that sin is causing breakdowns in our life because it is out to destroy us. We confess that the biggest barrier to God is ourselves, not some intellectual argument about whether or not he exists. Those are fine, and we need to engage that. But the thing that keeps us from God is our own hearts, corrupted by sin. If we don't confess this, if we don't confess our issues, if we don't see the difference that sin makes in a negative way in our lives, we will struggle to ever accept the gospel, to accept the mercy of God that crossed this distance to save us because we won't see the point, right? After all, if it's not that bad, why did it need to be? I mean, the gospel is a pretty horrific story of someone dying. Why did it need to get that bad if my sin isn't that bad? Why did it cost him this much to do that? Why does Jonah say he'll look to the temple? Because the temple symbolizes hope for Jonah. 
It's the hope of Israel, the hope of his people. But in reality, this book is pushing us to see even bigger hope than that because the temple doesn't only house God, the temple also reveals God. The temple is where God's law is. It's where God's priests would sacrifice on behalf of God's people to cover over their sin at that time. It is the place that every year on a specific day, the Day of Atonement, became this bright neon sign to God's people that the forgiveness of their sin was accomplished by the death of another. That our sin is that bad and that the only way to cross the distance between us and a holy God is through something taking our place in death. And so when Jonah looks to the holy temple, maybe... This self-identified Hebrew sees a building to be proud of and a God that is for him and other Hebrews. But the story tries to point us back past that to a God who is not just for Israel, but for all nations. That someday all nations will make their way to that temple to worship God. That this has always been the plan from day one when God made a people for himself. Even if that plan is going to be accomplished in a different way than we think. That it won't be some physical building, but a God who takes on flesh Still, as I'm talking about the gospel and keep hinting, I want to keep walking through this prayer so we get all the way to the end because Jonah's prayer actually continues. It is not just distance that needs to be crossed in order to rescue us from our sin. Sin does not just separate us from God. The second thing, that the difference that sin makes is that it goes deeper than we realize. Look at verses 5 and 6. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. The moment of hope for Jonah that led him to call out to God for help is as brief as, yes, as it is shocking, this disobedient prophet. And he begins to describe the situation. God made the difference by answering him, by acting on his behalf. Yes, in judgment at first, but then also in salvation through this fish. We've seen some of the differences that sin has made in his life, the distance that's created between him and God, but now we see this other difference. This depth, how deep it has gone as he describes the danger he's in. That if you don't get, as you read these words, there's terror in them. As he describes the water overwhelming him. As he's surrounded by the deep, all sense of direction is gone. Where, where seaweed is slowly choking the life out of him, he is sinking, sinking, sinking all the way to the bottom. And at the bottom, you almost hear the gates of death clang over him. It's over. This is, all he expects is to die. There is no hope in this moment. This is the end of a downward spiral, spiral that started all the way back in Joppa. When he goes down to Joppa, then down into a boat, then down to the bottom of the boat asleep, gets waken up, and now is in the ocean at the bottom at the sea floor. He is down as far as he could go, what we would call rock bottom. His situation is desperate. That is the depth of sin. Because our situation is also desperate. We are incapable, like Jonah is incapable, of rescuing himself. We are lost in our sin, and until we see how lost we are, we will never see how incredible his rescue truly is. Until we see how deep sin goes, we will not see how much deeper Jesus goes. Because God takes us down into the depths that we might actually see what he says we should see. What he sees. How bad sin really is. In God's deep, we need to acknowledge that we are out of our depths and that we need a Savior. We have to recognize in our disobedience that ultimately the choice to disobey like it was for Jonah is a choice towards death and away from life. And the reason we struggle so much with this, the reason I struggle so much with this, is you almost think that there has to be more. 
It's, it's just kind of too simple, that there has to be more to this message of the gospel, that I should be able to fix this somehow, exert my energy, my power, that I could be clever, that I could work hard enough, be religious enough, do something, do anything to repair this relationship with God. We feel the weight of our sin, but we think that we are strong enough to lift it. Kind of like someone going to bench press for the first time, not bringing a spotter, and getting stuck under the bar, deluded enough thinking that we're going to lift it. We've deluded ourselves into thinking we can find a way out of our desperate situation. All the while, we are dying under the weight of our sin. Jonah's prayer teaches us what it means to admit our powerlessness, that we are out of our depths and we need a savior. Too often, though, this only happens when we hit rock bottom. We learn by experience, but God is willing to bring us there to show us how incapable we are of saving ourselves so that he can finally save us. The grace of God is free, but it costs God everything. And until we see that, we'll never see grace for what it is. How awesome and radically life-altering the grace of God and the gospel in Christ is. This grace is what makes the gospel we proclaim to be as unbelievable as it is amazing. The difference that this gospel makes is the difference that Jesus makes. I'll trace it like this. I've been, been stopping myself all the way through, so... Nothing stopping me now. Prayer makes a difference because God makes a difference. And God makes a difference because we need him to, because sin makes a, such a negative difference in our life. But the ultimate way in which that God makes a difference is through Jesus. We read it in the, in the middle of our worship set. Jonah continues his prayer in verse 6, telling us of God's rescue. And yes, this is for next week, but I couldn't help myself. You, Lord my God, have brought my life up from the pit. This is where Jonah's prayer turns. We'll spend time examining what this turn looks like, but there is something that is planted here in this prayer that, that we need to hold on to if we're going to keep tracking with the rest of this book, the rest of this story. You see, Jonah needed to feel the mercy of God before he could proclaim the mercy to Nineveh. Jonah needs to understand the mercy of God before he stepped into a city that God wanted to be saved. And yet, by the end of the book, we find that Jonah has not really understood mercy as deeply as we think he should have. And yet, God still works with Jonah, like God still works with us, patiently, persistently, sometimes saying uh, harder sentences than we would like, but always because he loves us, working to change us by his grace. And the reality is we don't need a fish to save us anymore, we need Jesus. Jesus is God's answer, and Jesus is God's action. He is God's answer to our ultimate cry for help, God's action on our behalf to rescue us. And on the cross, it was Jesus who took God's judgment of our sin on himself to save us. Jesus, on the cross, crossed sin's distance and dove to sin's depths to save us. And it is this amazing grace in the gospel that not only saves us, changes our lives, but it makes us like him, compassionate, because we recognize our rebellion, we are compassionate for other rebels lost in their sin. He has saved us despite us, and it cost him everything on that cross. Connecting the cry of Jonah in his prayer, the cry of Jesus, to the, the cry of Jesus on the cross, this Old Testament professor Brian Estelle writes this, and this is my final thing before we step into communion. He writes this, he says, whatever the inestimable grief that Jonah feels in his cry at this point, there is another who entered into a state of forsakenness beyond anything ever imagined by human beings. Total abandonment by God. Jonah got himself into trouble, 
Christ, on the other hand, accepted the wrath of God not to atone for his own shortcomings, but to pay the penalty for sins not his own. Christ cried out with a cry of dereliction never before imagined or equaled since. The expression of grief voiced by the strained human poem of Jonah finds its ultimate echo in Christ's cry from the cross. And so the question for us this morning is, do you hear the cry of the one who suffered on your behalf? Do you hear the cry of someone not who disobeyed, but who obeyed God completely and yet took on our disobedience and our sin on himself because he loved us? This morning, I want us to, inv- to invite us to respond to that cry, to the display of God's mercy at the cross by taking communion together. By seeing and proclaiming his mercy packed into this retelling of the gospel through the symbols of his table. As you came in this morning, you should have gotten one of these symbols in a sealed cup, and we're going to wait till we get to each element to open them. I'll let you know when we can take each together. But as I close this morning, we take communion together. I want us to meditate on the words of Hebrews 10. They remind us that the same sacrifice that were repeated endlessly year after year in this temple we talked about, they can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. If they could, the writer of Hebrews says, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? Wouldn't worshipers have cleansed, been cleansed once for all, no longer felt the guilt of their sins? Verse 3, he says, but, uh, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But that impossibility was met with the certainty of Christ and his sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews continues, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, these these priests, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But verse 12, when this priest, when Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. His work was finished. He paid for all of our sins. This is what we celebrate and remember in communion. This is what shapes us as we retell the story of the gospel. A gospel that reminds us that this is what it took to save us from our sins. So as we approach this rhythm of worship, we are reminded again both of our sin and of our great Savior. And so before we partake, we confess. Before we eat and we drink, we confess. Not because we have to get saved again, but because this is a table of repentance. A table that declares the danger of sin and the depth of Christ's sacrifice. A table that is set for all who have expressed their belief and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so this morning, if you haven't done that, this table invites you to believe in the gospel of Jesus. Before we come to this table, I want to give us a moment to confess silently in prayer, to repent, confess our disobedience, confident of his forgiveness. Take a moment now to confess before God. Father of mercy, this morning we confess and we repent of all the ways we have disobeyed you, ways we've rejected your commands and gone our own way. We confess and we repent. We turn from our sin and towards you, confident not in our ability to save ourselves, but in your love. And so as we come to this bread, we pray that you would remind us that your power to save came at infinite cost to you in the broken body of Jesus. We are confident in the words of Hebrew 10 that remind us that you have made a new and living way back to you 
for us. Thank you. Amen. Let's open now the top part for the bread together. Get all the crinkles out of the way. And like we've been doing, you know, kind of a new thing for us, but let's hold it up together. And I remind you that the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians that I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take and eat together. Jesus, your body broken and your blood spilled, we thank you for what you did for us, for saving us. It was impossible for the blood of any other sacrifice to save us. It is your blood alone that is able to do that work. And it's by your blood that Hebrews 10 tells us we have confidence to enter the most holy place. So we draw close in this moment and we worship you. Amen. Let's open the cup together and hold it up. The Apostle Paul continues, In the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. Spirit of the living God, we draw near to you this morning with hearts, like Hebrews 10 says, sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Having our bodies washed with pure water, we come to you with sincere hearts and with the full assurance that faith brings. And we pray that you would continue to shape us with the good news of this salvation. Help us to see in Christ the answer to our sin. We remember at this table the distance and depth of our sin, and we thank you for saving us. Please continue to shape us as dependent people in prayer, trusting you to work in and through us for the good of our neighbors, for the good of others who need to see their rebellion and come to you because of your love. We pray all of this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.